Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Glad you're with me today. Today's going to be a really awesome episode. This is one that I've been thinking about for a long time and bouncing ideas off of uh, of others and uh, just kind of working on putting this together in a way that it kind of flows nicely together. Today I want to talk about Section 132 in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is a section that over the last few months has gotten lots of discussion going. Uh, Kirk Van Allen uh, began by writing a post where he, as a faithful, believing, uh, church-going uh, Latter-day Saint, posed the idea that Section 132, there's no way that that came from God. So right afterward, Brian and Laura Hales were quick to respond and to give a rebuttal uh, to that argument, showing how 132 fits perfectly fine uh, within canon as divine scripture. The, Al- the Van Allens then uh, responded back, and it became kind of a, a push and pull uh, between both sides in trying to determine uh, what to make of Section 132. I will say personally, having having uh, read Section 132, number one, I recommend that every member of the church read it. For those who have read it, uh, and me putting myself in that camp, it is a it is a revelation that makes me very uncomfortable for lots of reasons. Uh, first off, Joseph doesn't seem to be following his own rules, and the Van Allens seem to point that out. The Hales tend to argue that uh, that he is, but uh, I, I just seem to struggle with that. Joseph seems to talk about the idea that uh, that if a man takes other wives, that they should be virgins. Joseph doesn't seem to be adhering to that in every case. Joseph also shares in this revelation that the Lord had given him that one needed to seek consent uh, before uh, being sealed or being married outside of their own uh, their 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 first marriage, and Joseph uh, doesn't seem to be following that uh, either. And so both the apologists and the critics have kind of given us this black and white way of handling this issue. We've got two options: one is to throw out 132 as Joseph's creation. And hence, Joseph being a sexual maniac, a perverted person, simply carried out polygamy to satisfy his own sexual needs. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin that the critics and apologists have given us is to simply say that, hey, God gave this revelation. Joseph's doing the best he can to implement it. And uh, and hence, all of us as, as faithful Latter-day Saints need to not raise uh, any kind of concern, nor should we be critical of any way of God's revealed word. As usual on Mormon discussion, uh, we'd like to delve into uh, another way of seeing that. I just want to throw out um, this idea that we have this angel, Joseph seems to be claiming, and there is some uh, skepticism on this idea. I will link an article to this episode that talks about the... Uh, hesitation that some members in the church had for placing credibility on the story of the angel with the drawn sword. But it seems that uh, most scholars in the church uh, seem accepting uh, of this story, that there's this angel who comes and he, he, he draws his sword and tells Joseph, Joseph, you are, are hesitating and you're not going forth with polygamy. You need to do it. Otherwise, your life is in danger. And the the understanding that Joseph has from this experience is that if he does not carry out with polygamy, carry forth with it, that he will end up bringing damnation and, and possible death, possible spiritual death to himself and to those women that he is proposing to uh, and asking to help join with him 
in carrying out uh, the command of this angel. But is there another way to view this story of the angel with the drawn sword? So let's break this down into different uh, points, and let's see if we can maybe begin to kind of wrap our head around a alternative view in which to see this revelation, section 132, while not having to completely throw Joseph out the door as a prophet, but also not having to accept 132 absolutely without any ifs, and, or buts. And so the first thought would be to maybe think about the idea of if there have uh, been leaders in the church or prophets in the past or other folks within scripture who seem to be led by God, but also that Lucifer directly attempts to deceive. And so the first thought that came to mind was Lucifer visiting the Savior. And so Lucifer visits the Savior and tempts him, uh, tells him to turn rocks into bread or to cast himself off the mount and angels will, will pick him up. But Jesus picks up on this pretty quick and, and he's not falling for it. And so he uh, he sends Lucifer away. But this isn't the only time this happens. Lucifer also appears to Moses and, and tempts him as well. Or how about Lucifer in the Garden of Eden, right? So Lucifer shows up in the garden and he tempts Eve and Eve actually falls for it. She actually succumbs to the temptation of what Lucifer is presenting. But her helpmeet, Adam, knows better. And he begins to figure out the fiery darts of the adversary. And and Peter, James, and John come along and send uh, Lucifer out of the garden. Now, as we as we think about that, we could easily say, well, yeah, but in each of those three instances, they discover Lucifer's true intentions, and they send him away. And in the end, they figure it out, and God's plan is in no way thwarted. Well, so be it. But do we have any examples in Scripture of prophets actually being deceived by Lucifer? And we actually find one within Restoration Scripture. This is in First Nephi, chapter 8. This is where Lehi is recounting his dream of the tree of life. I find it interesting that often in the church when we talk about Lehi's dream, we skip over chapter 8 for the most part. And we go right to a couple of chapters later where Nephi is giving his interpretation of the dream. But if we actually look at Lehi's dream, there's something interesting we find in there. This begins uh, in verse 3. And he says, And behold, because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam. For I have reason to suppose that they and also many of their seed will be saved. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. For behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. Now here's the key point, beginning in verse 5. Lehi says, And it came to pass that I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. And it came to pass that he spake unto me, and bade me follow him. And it came to pass that as I followed him, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me, according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And it came to pass that after I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field. And from this point, 
Uh, this next verse, it, it talks about in verse 10, it talks about Lehi then sees the tree. Uh, and he talks about this tree uh, whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. But if we back up there to verse 5, this this individual shows up. He's in a white robe. It It seems apparent from the scriptures that Lehi finds this person in a white robe to be trustworthy and to be worthy of following. And so Lehi the prophet follows this man in the white robe, except this man in the white robe leads him into a dark and dreary waste. And only after he travels for the space of many hours in darkness does he realize that he's been led astray by this person in the white robe. And at that point, he begins to pray. And then because of the Lord's tender mercies, he's led into a large and spacious field where he beholds the tree. So here we have in scripture an example of someone who poses as a angel of light only to turn out to be a spirit of Lucifer who convinces Lehi to go off the path into a dark and dreary waste. So here we have a prophet being misled. Now, the thing with 132, if we can show that the angel that shows up with a drawn sword, if we can show at least plausibility within Mormonism that this angel was possibly a a deceiving spirit and that Joseph was fooled, then all of a sudden I think one has room to hold on to Joseph as a prophet while still having doubts, honest doubts, about section 132. So first we showed that Lehi succumbed to this this spirit who's posing as a, a good and righteous spirit that turns out to be deceptive. But we can go further than that. How about the view of scripture? So let's look at it this way, right? One of the things we say is that section 132 is a revelation in the restoration given to the prophet Joseph Smith that who are we to take revelations, to take scripture and to cast it aside as not being from God? But see, the restoration gives us that permission itself. In the 1870s, Brigham Young said this. He said, I have heard some make the broad assertion that every word within the lids of the Bible was the word of God. I have said to them, you have never read the Bible, have you? Oh, yes. And I believe every word in it is the word of God. Well, I believe the Bible contains the word of God and the words of good men and the words of bad men, the words of good angels and the word of bad angels, the words of the devil, and also the words uttered by the ass when he rebuked the prophet in his madness. I believe the words of the Bible are just what they are. But aside from that, I believe that the doctrines concerning salvation contained in that book are true and that their observance will alleviate any people, nation, or family that dwells on the face of the earth. The doctrines contained in the Bible will lift to a superior condition all who observe them. They will impart to them knowledge, wisdom, charity, fill them with compassion, and cause them to feel after the wants of those who are in distress or in painful or degraded circumstances. Journal of Discourses, 13175, given May 29th, 1870. So here's Brigham Young giving us as Latter-day Saints permission to recognize that scripture does not entirely come from God, that it's messy, which is something we've been saying here for a couple of years now, realizing that scripture is messy and that all of it is not necessarily from God gives each of us room to personally consider how we're going to, how much of it we're going to take as God's work and how much of it we're going to set aside 
while still realizing that the doctrines of salvation are contained therein. So when we look at scripture, it alone gives us permission to allow some of it to not be from God. But you say, okay, fine. Some of the Bible wasn't translated correctly. That doesn't mean that we can take a prophet in the restoration like Joseph and simply mark something he said or taught as not being from God. That's, you're going too far, brother real. You're, you're, you're missing the mark. But let's see if that's the case. Let's tackle another issue, for instance. Let's look at the Adam God theory, which Brigham Young taught adamantly at points in his life. That there was even discussion of implementing some of the Adam God teachings into the temple endowment. This, uh, this Adam God theory was not just one or two quotes in the Journal of Discourses. Rather, it is a pervading theology that Brigham Young is teaching in an expansive way and on multiple occasions. And anyone who reads deeper into LDS history uh, will acknowledge that. In fact, Elder McConkie, Bruce R. McConkie, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, acknowledged it in a personal letter to Eugene England, who was a BYU professor. Elder McConkie felt a need to address the Adam-God doctrine. Now, as I as I use this as a backdrop, what I want you to pay close attention to is Elder McConkie's understanding of the flaws and shortcomings of a prophet. Here's Elder McConkie in his own words. He says, Now, may I say something for your guidance and enlightenment? As it happens, I am a great admirer of Brigham Young and a great believer in his doctrinal presentations. He was called of God. He was guided by the Holy Spirit in his teachings in general. He was a mighty prophet. He led Israel the the way the Lord wanted his people led. He built on the foundation laid by the prophet Joseph Smith. He completed his work and has come on to eternal exaltation. Nevertheless, as Joseph Smith so pointedly taught, a prophet is not always a prophet, only when he is acting as such. Prophets are men, and they make mistakes. Sometimes they err in doctrine. This is one of the reasons the Lord has given us the standard works. They become the standards and rules that govern where doctrine and philosophy are concerned. If this were not so, we would believe one thing when one man was president of the church and another thing in the days of his successors. Truth is eternal and does not vary. Sometimes even wise and good men fall short in the accurate presentation of what is truth. Sometimes a prophet gives personal views which are not endorsed and approved by the Lord. Now see, it's one thing to say, yeah, prophets err in doctrine, and so we can just compare what they say with the standard works. But some of the trouble with the standard works is that they are the teachings and words of prophets which may possibly have erred in doctrine. You see, it's in a sense circular reasoning. You're using the words of prophets to measure the other words of prophets when prophets can err in doctrine. Brother McConkie continues. He says, yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits and all the related things that the cultist ascribed to him. This, however, is not true. He expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. But be it known, Brigham Young also taught accurately and correctly the status and position of Adam in the eternal scheme of things. What I am saying is that Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young. And the issue becomes one of which Brigham Young, of which Brigham Young we will believe. The answer is we will believe the expressions that accord with the teachings of the standard works. Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young. I find that statement interesting. 
because when it comes to section 132 in polygamy, at times Joseph Smith contradicted Joseph Smith. Elder McConkie continues. He says, I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam and of knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam-God theory. President Joseph Fielding Smith said that as for me and my house, we will have the good sense to choose between the divergent teachings of the same man and come up with those that accord with what God has set forth in his eternal plan of salvation. Elder McConkie continues, he says, I do not know all of the providences of the Lord, but I do know that he permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church, and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. I repeat, Brigham Young erred in some of his statements on the nature and kind of being that God is, and as to the position of Adam in the plan of salvation. But Brigham Young also taught the truth in these fields on other occasions. And I repeat that in this instance, he was a great prophet and has gone on to eternal reward. What he did is not a pattern for any of us. If we choose to believe and teach the false portions of his doctrines, we are making an election that will damn us. And I'll stop there. There's more that uh, Elder McConkie says, but I think it's uh, enough to, to just stop there. Uh, there's this idea that Brigham Young contradicts himself and that Brigham Young is, while teaching truth on an issue, is also teaching error and that Elder McConkie and his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, both were comfortable realizing that he per- that the Lord permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. My point here is that Elder McConkie gives us room within the restoration to acknowledge that prophets sometimes are deeply wrong in error in doctrine. That is a huge step forward from the way most members of the church look at, consider, and think of prophets, seers, and revelators. But they can and do err in doctrine, and the Lord permits them to do so. So we have the flexibility to recognize that Scripture has pieces and parts that do parts that do not come from God. We realize that the restoration gives us flexibility that prophets, seers, and revelators sometimes do not teach the things of God and sometimes teach things that are in absolute conflict with the doctrine of God. We can think of other things. We could talk about the uh, race and the priesthood uh, gospel topics essay. And how all 15 men in the 1940s thought that interracial marriage being sin and blacks being less valiant in the pre-existence, that those things were doctrine. And yet, even though all 15 men taught those ideas unitedly as divine doctrine, today we acknowledge that they are wrong. That regardless of how passionate and how, how pressing they felt that these truths were, that they were misled. That too gives us even more room. So that brings me to what I want to offer as the biggest, uh, new idea or, or something I want to bring to the table that I don't think has been discussed before. It's this idea of Joseph seeing in reality this angel with a drawn sword and the idea that perhaps this angel, while portraying himself, as a righteous spirit who has been sent from God, that the scriptures themselves give us the flexibility to see that this may not be so. 
And so for that, for my final piece of this, let's turn to our Doctrine and Covenants. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we can turn to section 129. This section is unique in that it's, it always kind of caught me off guard as a, as a strange revelation. And, uh, and yet section 129 may be the answer to this problem of 132. Section 129 are instructions given by the prophet Joseph Smith making known grand keys by which the correct nature of ministering angels and spirits may be distinguished. He starts off in verse 1. He says, There are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels who are resurrected personages, having bodies of flesh and bones. For instance, Jesus said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Secondly, the spirits of just men, made perfect, they who are not resurrected but inherit the same glory. When a messenger comes, saying that he has a message from God, offer him your hand and request him to shake hands with you. If he be an angel, he will do so, and you will feel his hand. If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that is the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move, because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive, but he will still deliver his message. If it be the devil as an angel of light, when you ask him to shake hands, he will offer you his hand and you will not feel anything. You may therefore detect him. These are three grand keys whereby you may know whether any administration is from God. This is the guidelines that Joseph Smith gives us in recognizing good angels from dark angels. They will not be dark in appearance. They will be deceptive. They will wear white robes as the deceptive spirit who led Lehi astray did. They will come as angels of God, as Lucifer did in the garden. But the key to discovering which angels come from God and which do not is to ask them to shake your hand. So my proposition today with this episode, my conclusion, my my words of, of thought and ideas to you would be a simple question. When the angel came with the drawn sword, did Joseph ask to shake his hand? The answer is we have no record of him doing so. We have no no testimony of any effect that he used what he gave as the three grand keys whereby you may know whether any administration is from God. He did not apply this to the angel with the drawn sword. You say, well... That's Joseph Smith, though. He can't be deceived by a deceiving angel. But then I would say that Lehi was. Is Joseph more discerning of good and bad spirits than Lehi? Especially if Joseph doesn't use this idea of shaking the hand with the angel. So I end by saying that one, restoration scripture, restoration's view of scripture, gives you room to see that not all scripture is divine communication from God. Two, the restoration gives you room within the view of prophets that not everything they teach will be from God. And three, Joseph Smith himself in the Doctrine and Covenants gives you room to determine that section 132 may have possibly not come from God. That it's possible that Joseph erred in doctrine. Elder McConkie gives us room for that. It is possible that section 132 as scripture did not 
come from God. Brigham Young gives you room for that. And it is possible that the angel with the drawn sword did not come from God. Joseph Smith himself gives you that. I'd like to finish with my own uh, personal views of section 132. I'm uh, I'm uncomfortable with it. Having read it several times, it just uh, it doesn't sit well. It doesn't uh, it doesn't fit well. In spite of uh, apologetics and I respect uh, Brian Lauren Hales a whole bunch, but in spite of that, I see Joseph Smith not quite abiding to the very rules that he sets in section 132. He's the Lord seems to give permission to marry virgins, and yet Joseph doesn't marry virgins. He marries women who are already married to other men. It says that the first wife needs to give consent, and yet Joseph, in some instances, doesn't even ask her, uh, especially even with the first wife of Fanny Elger. Yet, I cannot go so far as to disavow it. Rather, I see many possibilities from the revelation being divine to it being man-made, to even the possible we talked about today of prophets being deceived in erring in doctrine, and yet still being prophets. And yet in spite of all of that, I hold faith that something divine could be going on. That said, I see room for us to acknowledge some scripture may in fact not come from God. And not all doctrine is true doctrine, and prophets do not always speak the mind and will of God. And each of these have precedent in Mormon theology and uh, and in our view of scripture. I would end by saying that I do have a testimony, though. I have a testimony of the knowledge. I have a knowledge of the fruits of the gospel, that they uh, that they have borne witness in my life, that they are true. I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his atonement, in his resurrection. And I have a hope in the restoration of the gospel in prophets today and in the Book of Mormon and scripture. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Taking out my issues never healed